for inviting me. It's really a great honor to be here and present at my alma mater about connect with Susan. Um, so the title you have there, Land Rights and Civil Status, well, I went even further look, made a little bold revision and said land property rights and the origin of racialized nationalism in settler colonial Algeria. I feel I can be a little bold because to process the story, I'm actually a specialist on the uh, post-independence period. So my book and my all my published work have been on post-1962 stories of the unraveling of Algeria and the aftermath of the quote-unquote repatriation of the white settlers to France. Um, so this is the, the audacity of the ignorance and trying to go back to a time period and not all uh, versed in, but still took interest because of my work. So I want to um, get a lot of commentary and critique on this. I can improve it for the longer manuscript. Uh, between 1863 and 1873, a decade that spanned the latter half of the French Second Empire and the first years of the Third Republican France, a set of laws were passed that would ultimately consolidate settler power and control over land in Algeria. The Algerian departments had been declared constitutionally French uh, since 1848, but large tracts of land, we're talking 11.9 hectares of land, mainly along the littoral uh, fringes of the Sahara, were uh, still under tribal possession. So uh, the tribes, uh, what the French called tribals, were, were referring to Muslim Arab tribes, um, and they were a demographic that remained pretty resilient throughout the colonial period uh, and until independence. So by independence, we had about one million European and Jewish uh, citizens versus nine million Muslim uh, inhabitants, probably using the category in the broadest sense. They were a property class throughout the colonial period, early colonial period. Um, and so, in some ways, they're very different in their fates compared to the American Native uh, Americans, Indians. By the mid-1860s, there were approximately 2.7 million uh, Arabs, and all the categories when I refer to people are the French categories, so they're not mine, so I refer to the archival categories. And 192,750 uh, Europeans. An 1851 law had declared tribally owned lands as well as private holdings inviolate, whether they were under the ownership of a native inhabitant or a European settler. But the 1850s marked a decade of transition as the power imbalance between civilian and military authorities in Algeria was about to undergo a shift in favor of the civilian population. My presentation today is inspired by the work uh, of Petra Folk, but also uh, by others who are in settler colonial studies, hones in on this and the three laws that were critical to accomplishing two things, the entrenchment of settler power, and second, the impartial assimilation uh, or incomplete assimilation of the Muslim population, which undercut their access to land and to political rights all at once. The laws in question were 1863-1865, uh, the Senate Consult Laws, and the Premier Decree of 1870, and finally the 1873 Vanier Law, uh, named after a settler lobbyist who uh, legislated, helped legislate the law. 
I analyzed not only how settlers were able to win specific advantages with respect to property transactions through these laws, but also how the civil status of Muslim, Arab, and Jewish inhabitants would be modified in the process to help make more definite the social and political divide between uh, French citizens who are landowning and native Muslim subjects whose, whose relationship to the land would become ever more tenuous. Ultimately, the right to secure property ownership in Algeria would install a capitalist settler colonialism that would also become racially legible. I should add that these laws do not happen in smooth sequence toward a single teleological end. While Napoleon III, then emperor of the Second Empire, attempted to craft a law that would delineate a French community and an Arab kingdom separately in Algeria, settler elites and representatives had already been mobilizing a decade beforehand, that is in the 1850s, to push for legislation that would facilitate the acquisition of tribal land that had been deemed hitherto inviolate, as I said, under the 1851 law. Encumbered by urgent appeals from both tribal communities on the one side and enterprising settler elites on the other in the early years of the Second Empire, Napoleon III's plan was to address either side's concerns by using rather ambiguous legal language. On the one hand, the 1863 Senate Consult Laws declared that tribal properties were non-transferable, while on the other hand, the law stipulated that protection would only be guaranteed to those tribes who were considered sedentary on the land, uh, a condition which resulted in the French mind in the exclusion of large numbers of the Arab population living on the northern fringes of the Sahara. The same law also promised the Europeans measures that would, quote, facilitate the exploitation of land in all its forms and to set aside land for companies and public works that hold a general interest in expropriating land for public utility causes, end quote. So although some historians would like to consider the Senate's consult laws as a genuine attempt to stem settler encroachment on tribal holdings, and uh, John Rudy's uh, one of them, it is possible to argue the opposite. These laws were drafted at the behest of land-hungry settlers, eager to see a more organized administrative system of management with respect to property across all territories, especially those public domain lands whose purchase and holding on the part of settler buyers had at times been considered precarious. What was achieved by these laws was clear in the end. Not only was the property market invigorated in Algeria, but the property transaction system was also modernized in favor of those literate in formalities of property ownership and exchange, uh, and that would mean enterprise settlers or speculators. Interestingly, the same laws regulating land ownership and the administration of Muslim tribal lands also interposed changes to the civil status of Muslim subjects. And, and uh, though no direct references were made, I'll argue that this had to do with the fact that Muslims uh, in the French mind were most associated with uh, landed property. Um, the emphasis those who study French history would find is interesting because at this time, Jewish and Muslim subjects were considered both colonized, but this law uh, continually uh, in, focuses on the Muslim category rather than referring to any Jewish category. Uh, I will argue that this had to do with ties to the land, um, and uh, that would involve mainly the Muslim population. And so it's not a coincidence that Jews were sort of sidestepped in the statements made in the law regarding uh, landed property rights. 
At this time, both Muslims and Jewish uh, North Africans who were colonized were referred to as indigenes. Uh, so this in category is interesting given our debate this morning about the contest of indigeneity. Uh, the French actually referred to these colonized peoples as indigenes. So that's a legal status uh, attributed to them through the law books. Important to this story is the long-term outcome of these laws. The conversion of colonized lands into assets would strip these of their political history. Regulations governing the real estate market in Algeria were subsequently modeled on laws of foreign settler colonial origin, which ensured the exclusive rights of the property owner. And uh, these were specifically the 1858 Torrens Act, uh, first conceived by Australian Sir Thomas Torrens, and the 1862 Homestead Act passed in the United States under President Abraham Lincoln. With the 1873 Varnia law, um, law in Algeria, Algeria would be integrated into a much wider global network of legal measures specifically devised to secure property ownership and securitize assets in the market, anticipating the modern real estate market familiar to us today. So what were these laws exactly? What was it? What were in them? Pursuant to the articles of 1863 Senatus Consul, tribal lands would be divided up into what was called duars, each duar into individualized holdings for which a title would be delivered to the owner, whether it was a family owner, under a family name, or an individual name. Each parcel would be allotted a parcel number, title, and the name of the owner. The delineation of tribal property and the disposal of lands belonging to the duar would be, all be managed, however, uh, under French administration and French laws. At each level, taxis, taxes were levied so that Arabs and Europeans would pay their share according to the size of their holdings. The 1865 law would also declare that, uh, so in the same law that's talking about land regulations and protection of tribal lands, uh, the second part of this law involved the civil status of Muslims, as I mentioned. So that um, statement reads, all Muslims are in fact French. That's straight from the law, the legal text. Because again, Jews are missing from this statement. So why were Jews missing from this statement? Inside the legal debates around this law, the argument was that when the French conquered Algeria, uh, Muslims were colonized, but Jews were uh, liberated. It was a deliverance for Jews in Algeria. For both Muslim and Jewish subjects, French belonging was extended only partway. In their capacity as French nationals, that is, when they were declared French, what did that mean for the Muslim uh, and Jewish subjects? It meant that they could serve in the army and navy, receive promotions in the ranks of the military, and have access to pensions. Their children could attend French schools. As French nationals, Muslims and French, uh, Muslims and Jews could, in theory, quote, participate in the administration of their country while being guaranteed the respect owed to her person by foreign governments, end quote. As the Senate maintained, that is the Senate um, in the legislature in, in Paris, if French Muslims wished to obtain the rights of a full-fledged citizen, they would have to apply individually of their own accord to obtain what jurists call the quality of being a citizen. So they were French nationals, but not French citizens, uh, comparable to what um, Lorenzo talked about this morning. And in French, the, the status of being a full-fledged citizen was called qualité de citoyen. You have the quality of status of being a citizen. To achieve this full-fledged citizenship, or qualité, 
that Indigen, turned French nationals, would be required to sever ties with the customary laws to which each hitherto had submitted their conscience and instead pledged their allegiance to the laws of France. Few availed themselves of this quote-unquote opportunity, we can call it that, uh, with only 2,000 at most opting to risk the heretical descent. Uh, it's considered apostasy. These laws were sustained until 1944, so they lasted almost 80 years, if not more. In the case of Jews, the praising was equivocal, acknowledging their attachment to Talmudic laws, at the same time relaying Algerian Jews to the fate of metropolitan Jews, who in the uh, metropolitan legal mind had long desired to become French, unlike the Muslims. In Algeria, the partial naturalization via the Synaptic Consult was praised as an opportunity to move closer for Jews to that of the French uh, status. Um, you know, presumably, they all wanted full French status. In fact, everything would change for Jews in Algeria in 1870 with the Camus Decree, which granted Jewish subjects automatic full-fledged citizenship and full rights as French citizens. So that pretty much left Muslim subjects uh, uh, segregated in, in the laws. So all Jews were automatically equal to settlers in terms of their legal rights and citizens, uh, citizenship. The concomitant legislation of civil status and land ownership was not accidental. In a speech delivered during a trip to Algeria prior to the vote on the Sinatra's Council, Napoleon III would proclaim that, quote, the most important point of legislation after establishing the meaning of property is to define the civil status of individual persons, end quote. Not only is the colonial idea around property and civil status noteworthy, and other historians have noted this, uh, this uh, juxtaposition in the books, it's important to recognize the persistent work of naming and placing the individual person at the center of the laws governing colonized subjects, especially with regard to Muslims, normalizing the individual and her personhood as if she were a real political actor in the colonial context of subjugation and dispossession. The assumption was they would be able to voluntarily connect uh, themselves to the state and adhere to French laws with regard to rights of property ownership, which included rights to dispense of property. So uh, I think the emphasis really has to be on this individual person clause, detaching them also from tribal uh, associations. So the 1873 Varnier Law and after, uh, so what happens with the 1873 law? In the years following the promulgation of the Senate's Council Laws, settlers fought to complete the process of apportioning collective tribal lands. Almost 12 million hectares still remained under tribal ownership. Uh, and what the Varnier Law ended up accomplishing, because they lobbied and were successful in turning um, to the National Assembly in Paris to vote this law through, all the tribally held possessions would now be considered uh, eligible for privatization. And they were assigned exclusive individual titles. So again, the apportioning and divvying up of the tribal collective properties uh, were fulfilled through this final stage of this uh, legal process. The end result with the Varnier Law was, um, with the Varnier Law being voted through the National Assembly an army of investigator commissioners would be sent out to survey all collective and private landed properties and assign titles and numbers to each property. As the law was put into place, however, frustrated settlers argued for even more legislation to remove the indivisibility clause with regard to Arab family-owned 
plots and to implement more efficient measures that could verify the civil status and family surnames of title holders uh, and bar the intervention of local caddies who, quote, only added confusion in cases of auctions and transactions, end quote. This law, as it's uh, said by the settlers, should bring us important results. First, in making the native indigen a property holder and a true cultivator of his land. In submitting all properties to the imperial regime of French laws, we should prepare for a complete mobilization of the soil and the transformation of Arab society itself. We should render possible real estate transactions to the fullest, negotiations of purchases by Europeans, and the full extension of a free colonization, is colonisation libre. In the, act of the, uh, in the wake of the Barnier Law, the Governor General in Algeria conceived of a land regime in Algeria analogous to the 1858 Torrance Act, first applied in Australia, which would ideally apply across all territories absorbed with the 1873 law. In 1888, a conference was inaugurated in the city of Oran in Algeria to members of the French Association for the Advancement of the Sciences by one Paris Municipal Council deputy, Léon Donat. Donat was not alone, however, and he was a growing number of politicians interested in implementing the Torrance Act in Algeria with full force. In addition to advocating for the Torrens Act, he was a also vocal advocate for the introduction of the Homestead Act. Under the Torrens Act, landowners could register their property by simply sending a description, the border limits, and dimensions of the property to an office of registration, whereby a notice would be posted in a local newspaper. If no one came with a counterclaim on the plot within six months, the parcel would be registered under the climate new purchase, uh, new buyer's name. Uh, pending fees and other payments. Um, so this really set the tone for uh, aggrandizing settler property expansion. The goal was to remove all hassles related to contracts and other forms of documentation, as well as to avoid delays in meeting with officials to register a piece of property. More importantly, no posterior claim could be forwarded against the plot by family members of the original owner who might wish to rescind the original offer made by the settler to contest the transaction. As such, the new owner, usually a European, would be fully guaranteed her property ownership and be protected against any liens that might be attached to the land unbeknownst to the new title holder. And anyone who's purchased a home would be familiar <laughs> with the process. Donat argued that implementing the Torrance Act, a law that today would be taken for granted as the protection of the private indi individual in transaction, uh, would be especially gainful in countries of colonization, where frequent new land clearings often cause confusion as to which land is actually available and eligible for purchase. As Donat explained, quote, imagine how much more advantageous the act would be if brought to Algeria. Our laws even allow family members of the native settler the right to buy back lands that were sold off. We can understand how dangerous it is for the colonists. The Torrens Act could erase all difficulties with pure magic where purchasing native-owned lands was concerned. Usury is the scourge of the Algerian Muslim landowner, renting out land at prices crushing to cultivation, a stumbling block to French colonization. So in the interest of time, I think uh, the audience pretty much uh, guesses where this is going. So I just want to end by saying that um, with this act and the Homestead Act, uh, it, it, being introduced in Algeria, this gives settlers a much um, a more advantage in acquiring land. This Torrens Act, by the way, would circulate the globe. Uh, by the 1920s, it would be implemented by the American government in the Philippines and the Dominican Republic. 
So um, by the end of the 19th century, a lot of these settler societies are very interested in bringing it to fruition. Um, my end argument is basically that as the individual personhood and rights are uh, imposed on the Muslim subject, especially uh, these new land laws in conjunction with this change in civil status, uh, really plugs the Algerian scene into the global uh, modernized real estate uh, market and um, capital accumulation. So I can take questions after that, but I'll end there. Thank, Thank you. you.